0: You are listening to the Mother Good Podcast, episode number 61. I'm your host, Emily Carney. We at Mother Good believe that there's no way to be a perfect mom, but many ways to be a good one. Our content is judgment free within the context of evidence based research. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Mother Good Podcast. I am so excited to bring back on Trish Ware, who is a labor and delivery nurse, and she had she was on our uh, podcast last year, and her episode was so popular. It's one of our most downloaded of all time episodes. That I really wanted to have her come back on, and if you want to check out that episode that she did last year, it's uh, you know about labor and delivery essentials. So uh, be sure to check that out if you missed that. And so, Trish, thanks so much for joining us again today. I'm so excited to talk all things VBACs. We're going to talk about VBACs a little bit about C sections and also fear of labor, you know, as it pertains to VBAC. So, welcome back on our show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited, and I'm like so humbled that the episode was so popular. That's awesome to hear. Definitely, and a little disclaimer too
0: before we jump into this episode: that adds with all of our medical uh, related episodes that this is not medical advice. I know some people might be thinking, well, you know, why have medical related episodes if it isn't medical advice? Uh, And I was just chatting with, you know, my good friend, Lauren Michelle, about this, uh, who helped start Mother Good with me. And we were just talking about how, you know, a lot of women, especially pregnant women and postpartum women, that they just feel so lost and that they don't have the information necessary To even equip them to ask better questions to their healthcare practitioners, or maybe to seek out a second opinion, be an advocate for yourself in in the the you know in the doctor's office. And so Mm -hmm. that's one reason why I'm so passionate about bringing on guests. That's just Trish, who just are a wealth of knowledge. And I mean, Trish, she said she told me uh, before we started recording that she's been a labor and delivery nurse since 2006. So. She has lots and lots of experience, and just having some of that information is definitely so empowering uh, to all women. And I, I truly believe to actually get better medical care in the end. So, uh, Trish, with that, um, I would like to start off by just talking a little bit about C sections, because I know C sections are kind of related to VBACs. Uh, mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, one common question that a lot of people ask about C-sections, which to me seems so silly of a question to ask. It's like, oh, why are C-sections so common? So I, I figured we could just start
1: off with that that basic question. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. And I would love to know that answer as well, because um, actually the um, studies have shown that one third of all births are cesareans, which, you know, there's multiple schools of thought on why that is the case. But the, the thing is, is that that's observed and it needs to change. Like it should not be the case. We should not be having one third of all of our births as cesareans, especially when our bodies are so incredible and our bodies were made to birth our baby. I think the thing that uh, comes to mind for me as to why there's so many is that we as women, um, especially in the U.S., are led to believe that we can't give birth without a medical intervention when it's not the truth. Like the medical interventions are there just in case we need them. They're there for very specific reasons. And this has become something that is so important to me and I'm so passionate about because in the – you know, I guess that, that leads to my story. So in the last year and a half as a labor nurse mama, or, you know, which is my Instagram account as that, and the blog grew, I was being contacted by a lot of my readers, which they know I answer all my DMS. I answer all my comments and, um, I'm I'm hearing from a lot of women who felt traumatized by their birth. And a lot of that is because they were led into decisions that they didn't quite understand, or um, in hindsight, they felt they didn't need. But a lot of that fell on the fact that they weren't educated. So I think that our C-section rate is very high because we have a recipe for disaster. We have Women who are coming into the birth scene, their birth environment without the proper education and understanding of both their body and the process of birth and the hospital procedures and policies. Um, And then we have providers who are used to women not really being educated or understanding the interventions that are coming into play. So they are not, um, there's no check system for them in some hand. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying all providers are willy-nilly using interventions or, you know, going to a cesarean. But I, and I tell my students and my, both my birth courses this all the time. Sometimes all it takes is for you to say, well, what is the alternative? Mm -hmm. And Then the provider will say, well, blah, 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 blah. But if your provider comes in and says, you know, we've been at this all day. You're getting tired. The baby looks like it's, you know, maybe not so happy anymore. Why don't we think about going back to the OR? You'll have your baby in your arms in an hour. You're going to be so happy. You know, the whole point is Mm -hmm. a healthy baby. Well, what is mom going to say, right? Right now, if she's mm-hmm. taken a birth class like mine, where we talk about taking a pitocin rest, or we talk about you know taking a break from pushing, and all the different things that are options, if she doesn't know those are options, what is she going to do? She's going to say, "Well, he's my provider, and you know he knows more than I do, so this must be the only way." hmm
0: that, that sounds like a story that so many of my friends that, you know, a lot of them have had C-sections for their first child. And, you know, a lot of them actually have had successful V-backs after having a C-section. And that's definitely a common thing that I've heard in a lot of them, not all of them, obviously, you know, some of them have had medically necessary emergency C-sections. And I know that, uh, you know, you talk about this on your Instagram page too, that there are medically necessary reasons for getting a C-section. So we obviously don't want to discount that. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, you know, if it's it's just for convenience, and I really like that question that you said to ask, like, what is the alternat- alternative? And that's such a powerful question to ask a healthcare provider mm. Uh, and I, I'm sure that you have, uh, more to say about this, but at least in my experience, I know that a lot of my girlfriends and just women that I, I know in general, that for some reason, it's very hard to, for them to ask questions and to be direct in that way. And I, it, sometimes I think that it might go against a lot of women's nature because women tend to be not as you know assertive and and that not, again, I'm just generalizing. Yeah. Uh, but that's one thing that I like about uh, your birth classes uh, and all of your courses actually is that they, in your posts on social media, is that they empower women to ask those sorts of
1: questions. Oh, 100%. That's one of the things that I, you know, I claim before they join my courses is that they will be 100% ready to communicate their plans their desires their wishes and their needs to their providers and not just their doctor a lot of women are intimidated to speak up to their their labor and delivery nurse and the thing is is that um we forget that we've hired them they are employed by us and And, you know, Mm -hmm. this this all goes back to the very beginning, though. And one of the things that I really try to teach my audience is choosing their provider wisely. It's kind of hard for women if they've never been pregnant before to know exactly what they want in a provider. So this when I when I have girls in my classes, you know, during open enrollment, which I only open uh, the VBAC lab my and my regular birth course four times a year. And I do that because they legitimately, I tell them I'm their virtual labor nurse doula. They they really get mm-hmm. access to me as much access as they want. I, I meet them where they need. Some of them I never hear from them again. And then some I hear from daily, you know, so, mm-hmm. um, but they get, they get access to me. And so, you know, one of the things that I'm, I really love when I have mamas join in the first trimester is because I can help them from the beginning Because choosing a provider is probably the most influential thing you can do that will directly affect your birth and, you know, besides education, but it's kind of hard for a first time mom because, you know, when she's first pregnant, she, you know, doesn't know, what a fetal scalp electrode is, she doesn't know, you know, all these things are like so far out from where she's at. So I just think that um, it's a shame that we feel like we can't speak up. You know, I tell my students all the time, you better believe that if some man was sitting there and a doctor wanted to put something inside of his penis – He would probably ask some questions. Right. You know, like, (laughs) right. So, you know, I tell my moms, like, especially with cervical exams, like they, they have a right and they can refuse them. And, but let me say, and I probably said this last time I was on, like, one of the big things I say to my students all the time is we want nothing out of convenience or curiosity, right so you figure out is this convenient is this curi- curiosity on someone's part whether it's you whether it's your provider but the other thing is you don't refuse just because you can it's like you have this power but when do i wield it and when do i say okay i i trust my provider i trust my nurse she's been right along here with me in my plan and now she's saying we need to do blah you know and so you don't refuse just to refuse, because like you said before, the interventions are there for a reason. Exactly. So we don't want to put ourselves or our babies in danger. Like that's 100 percent not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that you have every right to speak up. You have every right to be a part of every single thing. Decision.
0: I Yes, I love that so much. You know? And I love too how you talked about picking your and choosing your provider. So I want to footnote that part of the conversation and come back to that later, because I did want to touch on a little bit what we were talking about that, you know, a lot of women feeling traumatized. And I know that there's this huge movement mm-hmm. recently towards an empowering birth. And then also, it seems like a lot of women nowadays are choosing home birth And again, I, you know, going back to that conversation I was having, um, with my, my good friend, Lauren, that she was saying, uh, that, you know, a lot of women are looking for answers and, you know, I, I think in the, in the healthcare practitioner setting that maybe it's not always realized that women are looking for answers. And, um, you know, one thing that I always thought that would be nice after giving birth is kind of like, um what are they I'm, I'm blanking on the word I'm still having like postpartum brain but basically when you when you go over something that just happened like after your birth so you're like okay well let's have a little um yes, yes debriefing. A yeah. debriefing I don't know why I'm blanking on the word yeah, a yeah. debriefing after
1: yeah yeah like a debriefing
0: on your childbirth <laughs> like just something like that would be so helpful like what went wrong like What can we strategize a change differently? Like if you don't ask those questions in the checkup at your six week checkup, or if you have a preconception checkup, then you may not even ever get the answers to your questions. At least I know that that's, that's been the, my case, my case, whenever I have, uh, you know, checkups and go back to the OB when I'm not pregnant, you know, Emily,
1: I mean, I think it should go back even further because, I had this conversation recently with my VBAC lab students. So my VBAC lab uh, course, we do eight weeks of coaching call, which really goes on forever because my girls don't leave me. Even once they have the baby, they come back to the coaching calls. But um, I was saying the same thing to them that after an event during a birth, if there's something that goes awry or what have you, the team does a debriefing. So anesthesia will come in, the the circulating nurse or their main nurse, the labor nurse, the um, charge nurse, you know, the whole team, the provider, the tech, everyone that was involved with the birth, whether they were directly involved or, you know, involved. And we sit down and we walk through it from each point of view And I said to my students, I really, truly feel like that needs to be done with the parents as well, like obviously in a different, you know, a different way because the team, we're going to be, right, very clinical, but sit down because here's the thing. Most women after their birth, if something happened, they don't even really have the words to know what to ask because... And that's one thing I've learned from, you know, talking to my mamas and my DMs, my ones who have been traumatized, when they start telling me what mm-hmm. happened, I realize real quick what really happened and that they mm. don't have a clue, but they're telling me their perception exactly. of what happened. And I know by what they're saying, That they weren't communicated with well, because I know what they mean happened, but they don't really know what happened. And so how do they go to their six-week checkup and ask the right questions? Because when they haven't, no one ever stopped for a moment and really explained Mm. what was happening. And I think that's a huge failure on the healthcare, you know, provider's it should be, there should be a moment where you go and you sit down. And um, that's something I definitely do with my patients, with Mm -hmm. all of my labor patients. If I'm working in the day or two after their birth, I always go over to postpartum and sit down with them and like, chat with them. And like, we'll talk about like, you know, good birth, Mm -hmm. difficult birth, whatever. And I, and I'll chat with them. And then typically they'll like ask me like, oh, when you were doing this, like what was happening? You know, and then I'll explain to them or what have you. But I've definitely myself as a labor nurse learned so much just from talking to my students and my readers about what they felt traumatized them. Because here's the thing, mom's that are traumatized are also traumatized by the people around them who are saying things like, well, your baby is fine. Get over it.
0: That that's so true that everyone around you has an opinion about it too. And, you know, uh, before we move on to the VBAC section, I, I did want to mention too, uh, just as a disclaimer for the the women who have had cesareans and also you know, whether or not they they were medically necessary, or it was traumatic, or those sorts of things. I, I wanted you to uh, just briefly talk about how women can, quote, get over. I, I don't want to really use that. that I don't know if that's necessarily the best word, but I've seen some posts that, that you've mentioned that since it is, it does feel like a failing. I know that so many women who have had C-sections, if not all of them, you know, maybe I've met like one, literally one person maybe who who didn't feel like it was a failure of their body. So what are some things that that you tell women uh, in order to help them mourn, mourn the delivery that they didn't have and not to feel so bad about it?
1: Well, that is a great question. So one of the things that I purposed when I was creating the VBAC lab is that I have a whole module on processing your previous birth. And that You know, it's in the VBAC lab. I also have a section at the end of my new birth course, which is for everyone that, you know, everyone else, whether they've had one baby or two babies, but they haven't had a cesarean. Um, I think to embrace your new birth, you have to go back and process it. They need to have a place and a, a way in which they can write it all out. Because a lot of them, I'm telling you, the majority of them have been told very callous statements like, Mm. you know, your baby's healthy, your baby's fine, that's the best thing. Like, you know, I just can't even tell you what is said to them. Right.
0: With no regard to the mental health of the mom, right?
1: Right. And I mean, in some circumstances, it's very frightening, the situation. Some of them, Never even got to experience the first labor pain because maybe their baby was breached and they were a scheduled cesarean or, you know, maybe they had a placental issue or something where they couldn't go into labor. So not only are they grieving like the vaginal delivery, but they're also grieving like even being like, oh, is that is that a contraction? Is that not a contraction? You know, like there's, there's such deep levels of this. And there are moms who are, you know, I have met some that are okay with the cesarean and, and all of that. But I think the biggest thing they grieve is that feeling of they were out of control, they didn't have a choice. And then on the flip side, as they're, you know, Being especially my students in the VBAC lab as they process through this and we go through and we walk through and we find their triggers. We have I have their partner do it with them as well. Some of them, it's certain things in the office because that's where they were when they were told suddenly that they were going to have to have a cesarean or maybe it's a mom who, you know, she found out her blood pressure was out of control and she got sent straight to labor and delivery for a cesarean. Mm. So, you know, the the process of putting a blood pressure cuff on her is a trigger. So, mm. we walk through those triggers. I have them write out their narrative. We acknowledge it, like we pay honor to it, you know, and then they process that so they can embrace the birth. But like one of my students said, this time around if she decides that a cesarean is the best, no one else is going to decide it for her because mm. of her foundation of education, because she's empowered with all of this knowledge, because knowledge is power. Mm -hmm. Then if the the choice is presented to her or it seems that this is going that way, then she knows that she did everything she could and that she knew it was 100 percent the best decision for her. And Mm -hmm. she um, felt like that in itself gives her back her power, like her power was stripped the first time because Mm -hmm. things were being said she didn't understand, you know, there, there was just a lot going on that she didn't know. And I can guarantee you, my students, they know what's going on, like from the Mm -hmm. inside out. So, you know, I think that's the best thing that we can say to them is like, you have to stop, you you have to forgive yourself. Mm -hmm. But what do you go from, you know, where do you go from here on out? The other thing is, especially for my high risk moms that ended up having a cesarean, like, I want them to pay honor to all the things they did. I mean, some of these moms—they're getting labs drawn constantly. They're having mm-hmm. to give up portions of their life. Maybe they're on bed rest. You know, maybe they weren't able to have sex with their spouse or their partner. Mm-hmm. Um, they're taking lots of medications, checking their blood sugar. There's a lot they did. So, like to say, like my body failed me. You need to, like, they need to acknowledge and honor themselves for all the extra steps they did to protect their child.
0: Right. Right. And then even if you're not high risk, I mean, even just, you know, normal pregnancy of nine months and all the toll that it takes on your mm-hmm. body, I mean, that's a lot yeah. too, that your body's like going through as well. And so I, I just love everything that you just said. And, and it is worth noting too, that obviously the obvious is that, you know, there are cesareans for a reason, reason that that oh, is a medically necessary, life-saving tool for both the mom and the baby. So, you know, I'm just always balancing because I, I know that, that, you know, there's a lot of camps where, you know, some people feel like all C-sections are bad or then, you know, some people just are like, oh, it's fine. Like all the C-sections. So I, it's such a nuanced discussion, but I just, you know, for those who are listening, I just don't want to lose sight of the fact that obviously it, it is a life-saving tool, but that, as you had mentioned, where there's one third of births in the US currently are C-sections, then there's a little, there's, it's, it's clear. And um, I think there's even been some medical associations too, that are, have recognized that, that there are a little bit too many C-sections. And so oh. that's where it's so important that you're information and the tools that you're empowering with comes in.
1: Well, and it, it's, it's really important to note that like ACOG said, uh, so the number one reason that mo that first time moms are taken back for a cesarean is labor dystocia or some, something that is um, making your diff- your labor not progress. Right. Or something mm-hmm. that's, you know, like putting a, a wrench in the wheel And one of those is failure to progress. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) ACOG is very clear about the fact that the majority of those are diagnosed incorrectly. They Mm -hmm. are not supposed to be saying failure to progress unless the mama is in active labor. Interesting. The majority of those women are not even three to four centimeters and ACOG had you know and I think in twenty seventeen I could be wrong about the year don't quote me but they changed um the fail- so now they're saying active labor is six centimeters or more and a lot mm-hmm. of us have known women who for a couple of weeks are four to five centimeters like I was right. that, that was lucky. me with
0: my yeah. yeah that was
1: me with my first birthday. Right. So were you in labor? No. (laughs) No. So I tell my students, like if they're taking you back at three to four centimeters and you're not in labor and they're saying failure to progress, it'd be like me calling my husband and saying, I need a tow truck. My car's not working. And him being like, well, did you turn it on? You know, like, (laughs) you know, my car's not going to progress if it's not turned on. So for these women to be taken back, a lot of it is, um, provider error and it's, it's a lack of innovation on their side, you know, like maybe they're not getting them up and moving. Movement has been shown to, for, it's tremendously helpful in labor for labor progression, gravity assisted positions, like all these things, like every single class, I kid you not every class that I have a mom who tells me she went back to the OR that was pushing and the baby was not progressing. I, If I ask her, what positions did they try? 90% of them, they were in mm. lobotomy on their back. Wow. And it's like, really? Like, mm. really, you can't? You know, it's just it's just maddening. The whole thing is maddening. And again, this is all the reasons why I've created the Be Back Lab. I mean, over in Labor Nurse Mama, we are all about women being educated and empowered so that they can make the decision that they want and that's best for them. Mm -hmm. So by all means, a repeat cesarean is an option for a mom who's had a cesarean. And some moms, they like it. They like to be able to schedule it. They they know what to expect because they've done it already. But the majority of the women that have had a cesarean, the majority of them want to have a vaginal birth and they're not supported. And it really truly is a shame because Americanpregnancy.org stated that 90% of women who have had a cesarean are candidates for VBAC. Mm, And yeah, and it's it's mind-boggling. The National Institute of Child Health and Human Development says that about 75% of VBAC's attempts are successful. Mm. And ACOG released a statement saying that as it's a safe and appropriate choice for most women who have had a prior cesarean delivery. So why are the doctors not supporting that? And why does every single person that my VBAC mamas know treat them like they're making this risky choice? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when in all reality, if you're a candidate, this repeat cesarean is the riskier of the two choices. Mm. But they're not led to believe that.
0: Right. Yeah, that's the perfect segue into the second section that I want to talk about, which is all about VBACs. And for anyone who's not familiar with what the term is, it stands for Vaginal birth after C-section. is that that's that's right. I got yep. that right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, and then also for anyone who isn't familiar with ACOG, that's the American College of Gynecology. Yeah, um, I'm familiar with it because I I guess I'm a nerd. I just like researching those sorts of things. But if anyone's wondering, um, you know what what we're referencing. So, what is a VBAC? And I know that you had mentioned that. What was it? Ninety percent of women are eligible for a VBAC. So, what makes a woman eligible for a VBAC? And then, if a woman listening wants to know if she is a good candidate, what kind of steps can she take to find that out?
1: So, the what I always like the first thing is is like what happened the first time. Is it a repeatable or a non-repeatable event? Like that's one of the first things that like I, I always ask. So. Let's say you have some like you had a car wreck as a child and your pelvis was crushed and you have a deformity that's repeatable. That's going to be the same no matter how many babies you have. Right. So something like that would be repeatable if you have a chronic condition that's repeatable. If it's something that's particular to that baby, like the placenta, each placenta is different. Each placenta comes along with that particular baby. So if you had a placental issue, like maybe placenta previa or something of that effect, that's non-repeatable. If there was a cord issue and that the baby had fetal deceler, you know, had, was fetal intolerance or fetal deceleration, or you had a breech baby or something that's particular to that pregnancy. Um, some of my moms who had preeclampsia that ended up back in the OR, they are they they potentially could have a VBAC. It just really depends on their health during the current pregnancy, what's going on. If you know, um, if they develop preeclampsia again, the other thing that's really important is the incision. Now, it's not the external incision, it's the internal incision, Mm -hmm. like the one that's on the uterus. So we need to know like if it's horizontal or vertical. Now, that being said, ACOG has also said that it is, you know, ideally you have a horizontal, a low, you know, incision. Mm Mm-hmm. Ideally, but it doesn't absolutely rule you out. But I, you know, I would be a little hesitant. I'd really want you to have like a, a couple opinions on that one. Mm. Um, you
0: the- mean if you've had like a vertical incision? Yeah.
1: If you mm. had like, if they, you know, especially in other countries or if you had like an emergency, like a true emergency C section where we have to have the baby out quick. We're right. not going to take all the time to do a tiny little bikini cut, you know? Mm. So, you know, if mom has a scar from the middle of her stomach down, then probably she had an emergent situation and it, it might not. The other thing is, is you really want to wait at least 12 months from the time you have your cesarean to the time you get pregnant again, preferably 18 months. Now, that being said, I've got a couple students in the VBAC lab who did not wait that long. Now they know how I feel, you know, right. they're having their, they're going for their back anyway. And, um, you know, I, I love them and I'm educating them and I'm supporting them, but they know I'm a little uncomfortable with that myself, you know, and I'm pretty laid back. Uh, but so you have to just look at these different, uh, scenarios and, you know, the, there's a there's I don't know if you've heard of the VBAC calculator, but it's literally no, it's ridiculous. And some providers use it. And and this is one thing that I teach in my classes, especially during open enrollment. Um, I'll teach some like VBAC informative type classes. You have to pick a VBAC friendly provider. Mm-hmm. There is a difference between, you know, there's the people who just won't do them at all. Right. Right. So they're not in the category. But then you have VBAC friendly and then you have a VBAC tolerant provider. A VBAC friendly doctor, you know, is more than likely not going to use a calculator because according to the calculator, anyone is a candidate kind of gives oh, wow. you your chances <laughs> of your a successful VBAC. Half of my students who have had a successful VBAC, they were very low on the calculator, you know, so Mm -hmm. the calculator is just ridiculous. It's outdated. Um, There's just a lot of things about that that just really irks me. But um, so a VBAC friendly provider is going to support you, encourage you. They're going to be, you know, they're going to tell you the risks and benefits of a VBAC. They're going to tell you the risks and the benefits of a repeat cesarean. They're not gonna just really down, you know, tell you how dangerous the VBAC is and then downplay the cesarean. This is a major abdominal surgery. Right. It carries mm-hmm. much higher risk for women who are candidate for a, a vaginal delivery. I mean, think about it. Birth is supposed to end in a vaginal delivery. So obviously that's a right. better choice for our body. Like that, you know, our body can do it. So a VBAC tolerant provider is gonna say things like. Well, you know, we should go ahead and schedule the C-section date, get it on the calendar just in case, Mm. which is dropping this negativity and this like little seed of doubt in your body where a friendly provider is not even going to say anything about a cesarean date. Uh, A VBAC tolerant doctor is going to say, well, yeah, I'll do VBACs, but I won't induce you. I won't let you go past 39 weeks and I won't blah, 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 blah. Mm. Whereas the act friendly doctor is going to treat them just like every other vaginal delivery patient, <laughs> you know. So mm-hmm. you just have to really like know the the things to look out for. You know why can you know these providers induce feedbacks, but it's too dangerous for these other ones too? That it's just observed that the things they you know that's said and done to VBAC moms. They have to go through a lot of hoops. They have to go right. through a lot.
0: Right, uh huh. And then I know that you did say that choosing your provider is the most important thing that you can do to ensure a successful VBAC. What are some tips for finding a good provider? I know that you mentioned what to look out for when you're you're going to them. Uh, but I, a lot of times it's hard because you're already you've already been going to this doctor a while. I know so many moms they don't really want to switch providers. I personally haven't had a problem with that. I remember when I was pregnant with my first that, you know, when I had found out that um, one of the providers in the OBGYN group that I was going to had a pretty high C-section rate, then I was kind of uncomfortable continuing there. And so I kind of bounced around like, I think two, I want to say two or maybe even three places. I can't remember. It was, it felt like a lot until I finally found a provider that had a really low C-section rate. um, And then I was able to find the rate online Uh, And then the one who delivered my second, I mean, he even posts his C-section rate on his website. So, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that, you know, he said that his C-section rate uh, for first time moms was only 13%, which is- That's phenomenal.
1: Yeah,
0: that's an incredibly low rate. Um, So I I know, I just, I feel like I sort of lucked out because he was the doctor on call for my first baby. So I just lucked into getting this great and amazing provider, but I feel- bad for, you know, a lot of moms that, you know, maybe they don't think to look up a C-section rate of a doctor, or maybe they don't feel comfortable switching doctors or they feel like they're kind of betraying their doctor or whatnot. (laughs) I had one friend who, um, you know, she's pregnant with her third now, but I remember when she's pregnant with her first, her kind of mentality was like, oh, it's a doctor, you know, all doctors are the same, like they're all, they go, all go to medical school. So it doesn't matter. And then she ended up having a pretty traumatic C-section that later when she was getting consultations with other doctors that she found out was probably not medically necessary, most likely. And then she, you know, she tried for a VBAC the second time, but then it was interesting Then the second time around, she had like a completely different mentality, you know, that she realized, okay, not all doctors are created equal in this sense of like, who's, you know, more apt to do a C-section or not. So anyway, I guess a long story short, I'm just wondering, are there any tips for women to find those doctors or is it kind of like trial and error? Do you have to just kind of like try a few out or what's well, the strategy
1: there? So for, the, for my VBAC moms, a lot of them join the VBAC a little bit later in pregnancy, but I've had quite a few who have switched providers and that's something I definitely empower them to do mm-hmm. because- even if you you feel bad like you're going to feel worse 5 years from now if you don't get the birth you deserve and you want and you're capable of doing because you didn't want to speak up like that's going to create some issues i really encourage them because this is their birth story and one of the things i have my students do is write out their dream birth or how they want their birth to go but then we write out the steps of how you get there. So, you know, if they have things that they want in their birth, that's really important to them. Well, what do we need to do to get to that? And if their provider is going to be a roadblock right from the beginning and they know it in their gut, then switch providers. It will be the best decision they can make. But even rewinding as far as choosing a good provider in general, but specifically a VBAC provider, what I recommend to them is to go into a local Facebook group. Like right here, we have a Nashville's mom's group, you know, Um, go in and write, Hey, you know, this is my scenario. I want to have a VBAC. Who have you guys used that was, was supportive. And then when they get answers, dig deeper and say, okay, so, you know, would, would they induce you? Would they do this? Did they talk about cesarean? Like really get into the nitty gritty of it and find, you know, cause you'll see right away. Moms will tell right away, like what was their bedside manner? Did you feel supported? The other thing that they can do is it's an attempt. It may not work, but if I were sitting at the nurse's station at LD. And someone called and said, "Hey, I know that like you can't really recommend anyone, but if you were to have a VBAC, which provider would you choose?" You know, and so that's you know that's a great way to find out. Like you, I had one of my students in my normal birth course, like my non VBAC birth course. She um, on her hospital tour, obviously this is before COVID. On her hospital tour, she asked the lady doing the tour because she was very upset with her provider. She's having a lot of different things that in the beginning of pregnancy, her provider is like, sure, 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 sure. But now as she was 36 weeks, her provider was like, no, no, no. And so she asked the nurse that because usually it's an LED nurse that's doing the tour. She said, hey, if you were having a baby here, which provider would you choose? And the nurse was like, oh, but for sure I had so-and-so for all of my babies. And so she switched to her and she was like, Trish, that was the best decision I could have made. Like my birth was exactly what I wanted. And so, you know, it's just asking other moms and being, you know, specific. There's also a network called I Can, and uh, that is a good resource for moms who have had cesareans as well.
0: Hmm. How do you You solve that?
1: Is it? I C A N. Okay, That's so just right, right now, it's, two words. Okay, I can't even think of what it stands for. I think it's, oh my gosh, I can't think right now. I have I have been crazy busy today, running around.
0: <laughs> no worries at all. I yeah, I'm always running around, so the hence me forgetting the word debriefing. <laughs> so I'm looking at your post called uh, the title of it. It's your birth uh, V back. Mama. And I love all the tips that you list. And I know that we've covered some of them. You know, choosing the right provider, uh, understand if you're a candidate, which we went over. Um, be firm and advocate for yourself, which we're, we're sort of touching on uh, the fact that, you know, you have to switch providers if you have to, and then ask mm-hmm. ask the right questions to see if they truly are that supportive. Uh, some other ones that you posted were be patient, choose a good support system, know the stats and facts. Mm-hmm. And education is key. So what what are some tips that you have for being patient, uh, choosing a good support system, and then also some resources for knowing the, the stats and the
1: facts? Well, so obviously, the first thing I would say is the VBAC lab. It's all there for them. Like I've done We've got eight modules that uh, really prepare them. When I I say be patient, my VBAC moms, we want to really minimize interventions in the process of their birth. So we really want to see spontaneous labor. Well, you sometimes have to wait a little longer. So these moms who, you know, I just had a mama who did a VBAC 2Cs, which means she's had two cesareans and she just had a successful VBAC. And uh, one of the things that she had a really hard time with is that with her two first two births, they were both scheduled cesareans. So there was no waiting game. There was no wondering. Am I in labor? Am I not in labor? Should I go to the hospital? Should I not? When should I call my mom? When should, you know, like, so they really have to have a lot of patience. The other thing is, is that typically we want to be as hands off on a VVAC. We want to let it progress on its own. So the, the, which obviously all birth is the same. We really should be doing the same, but especially with a VVAC, you know, it's VVAC labors can be slow and they can, you know, they really have to have, patience. They also have to have a lot of stamina. Cause like I said before, there's a lot of opposition and there's a lot of, Naysayers. I mean, mm. random people will come out of the woodworks to like <laughs> inform my mamas that they why are you taking such a chance when they have no education, they don't know any of it. So, oh, right. I have a whole section in the VBack Lab that's all about the VBack facts and stats, so my girls can quote them to the cashier at Publix that is telling her she's making a bad decision, or Aunt Sally, or whoever you know. And then we, I have a whole thing that talks about the the benefits to both mom and baby. It's incredible. The benefits of having a VBAC, obviously mm-hmm. our body was made to do that, you know, so there's obviously benefits of, you know, the hormonal surges that, um, benefits the baby in such a way that a cesarean birth cannot. So, um, it, you know, they just really need to be as knowledgeable as possible. They need to understand interventions, mm. understand when and why they're used, when it's appropriate, when you can say, hey, you know, can is there an alternative? Can we wait when they, you know, can say no to their provider when they should, when they shouldn't? Mm because there's just a lot of roadblocks that get put up. And that's, that's actually one of my, my lessons in the VBAC lab is uh, VBAC, common VBAC roadblocks and, you know, things like they're saying my baby's big, which if you follow me on Labor Nurse Mom, I have a huge soapbox that I stand on in this one. And so like, just knowing the stats, like what does ACOG say, if my baby's big, does it mean that I can't have my VBAC? Well, ACOG says that um, suspected big baby alone is not an indication for an induction or Mm a repeat cesarean. Mm -hmm. So when their provider is dropping these things and these scare tactics, they can come back with the facts. And Mm -hmm. if my, if my girls don't know, if my students don't know what the hell the provider is saying, then I teach them to say, okay, well show me the studies you're quoting.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And sometimes that's enough, you know? So (laughs)
0: exactly.
1: Sometimes just them knowing that the patient is educated is enough that things change a bit, you mm-hmm. know, but I also teach them how to present that. I don't want them, you know, I, I want them to have a good relationship with your provider. It's hugely important that that is, you know, the case. And so I teach them how to communicate with their provider, the way in which to say it, that's respectful. And, and you know, because their provider, you know, ultimately, whether they have the same like thoughts on different things. The ultimate goal that they both have is a healthy mom and a healthy baby. So it's just really important that moms are educated and these moms know the different options. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I just, I hate that they're not supported. I hate it. This this is why I created the VBAC lab. And I've educated, like I, my education about VBACs has changed tremendously. When I When I first opened up the, the even talk about the VBAC lab, I opened it up to 15 women to become founding members. And I hadn't even created the content yet. And so I would create a module, they would do it. And then we would meet via zoom. We called it a VBAC happy hour, which two of my girls weren't pregnant yet. So we were the three having wine and we would over zoom break the module down. I would ask them, did you understand this? What was it clear? Like how did you feel? Like what do you feel I could add more? Like, and we really broke it apart. So this VBAC lab was created by me, but really nurtured by them. And so it's been a really interesting process. And you know I've had of my my founding members I have had most of them have had vaginal deliveries I've had two that had a, no, one that had a cesarean. The other one was uh, just um, a student, not a founding member. The one was her baby was breech. There was really nothing she could do. And then the other one um, she did everything she could. And in the end she made the decision to do a repeat cesarean and it ended up being the best decision for her. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it they they need to have a solid support system because on the daily they are going to hear something negative they're going to start flip you know i teach them how to flip the script of what they're telling themselves instead of being fearful like what if what if I can't progress this time? What if I push and the baby won't come out like last time? What if, you know, and, and so we flip that script. My body's powerful. My body's incredible. I can do this. Like the chances of me delivering vaginally is way higher than me not. Most of the women who end up not having a successful VVAC, it's not because of uterine rupture, it's usually because of maternal exhaustion
0: mm.
1: or impatience on either the provider's side or mama's side, you know, things just aren't moving fast enough for the provider to be happy and mom doesn't know she can say, wait. Mm-hmm. You know, so I just like to come, I just my my whole thing is to come alongside all women, VBAC moms, cesarean moms, vaginal moms, you know, all women and empower them that they have rights to make decisions in their healthcare. I mean, who in their right mind would go in to, you know, the hospital and have their, I'm just making this up completely, but have their liver removed because the doctor's like, you know, we've done everything. Let's take it out. (laughs) Nobody. Right. You know, so that's, you know, birth is, is still like you have every right and, and on top of it, birth is a natural process. Like that's one thing we talk about over and over again in my birth courses. Birth is a natural process. Trust in that process. I'm there. Your provider's there. The interventions are all there. If the natural process needs a little help, it's not the other right way around, you know?
0: And a lot of what you're saying is, I, you know, I think a lot of the reason why so many women are still treated that way at hospitals. And I know that I just kind of lucked out because the hospital that I go to, I mean, it's one of the best in this, the state of California for, for delivering a child. But I I think that a lot of the carryover of how women are treated when it comes to labor and delivery are from the time when, you know, decades ago when women didn't really have any rights in the labor and delivery room. I mean, Mm -hmm. I, I watched this Netflix series called sex explained And they had an episode on childbirth. And that's what they were talking about in the episode, how, you know, historically, women just didn't really have any rights when it when it came to labor and delivery, that if the doctor decided, hey, I'm going to put you under, which apparently they used to do all the time under general anesthesia. So we can just take this baby out like they just did it, you know, no, no consent needed. And that was just basically like women were just the vessels and the doctors could just do whatever they wanted. And thankfully, we don't, uh, you know, have have that anymore. Uh, so I do think it's a, a carryover from how it has traditionally been. I know that we've come a long way, mm-hmm. but we still have a long way to go. Uh, I know that you mentioned several things um, when you were when you're just talking. Um, one of them was common interventions that are used um, in the labor and delivery and being educated on that. If anyone listening uh, wants to learn more about that, Obviously, you know, they can take your birth classes and then also an episode 45 on our podcast. You talked a lot about the, the common intervention. So go ahead and check out that episode. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could give us a sneak peek, too, of maybe just like one or two stats uh, that you talk about in your courses. And, uh, you know, I think one of the big ones is uterine rupture that everyone always talks about. Um and then also maybe you could yeah. just give us like a sneak peek cuz I don't want you to give too much away cuz I understand it's your course but uh you know how how to phrase it maybe like one example of how to phrase something to a provider.
1: Well, yeah, so uterine rupture, the chances of a uterine rupture is less than 1%. That mm. is a very low chance. Now, it is a chance, you know, so I also teach my students the signs of uterine rupture. So I think that's important to know and, you know, but it is a very low chance. I can't remember the exact chance for like you and I who have never had a uterine surgery, but our chance mm-hmm. is also less than 1%. It's significantly lower, but theirs is still less than 1%. So I always try to mm-hmm. encourage them and you know the uterine ruptures that I've seen in the hospitals when I've you know been working, um, we have not had a loss of mom or baby. There's been some, you know, mm. it, it's scary for all of us, especially you know obviously for the family. Right. But um, it's a very low chance, a low risk. So when you add in whether you're a candidate or not, like you're staying down there for that low risk. Now, a mom who, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe not has not waited as long as 12 months, it's just slightly more, it's still not Mm -hmm. significantly higher, you know, but so I guess for that, that's, that's just, they have to weigh that. Like it's a very low risk. The other question that you ask about, you know, talking to your provider I think the main thing is making sure that you're in check. So I always tell my students, if you go to an appointment and they throw something on you that was unexpected and they want you to make a decision Let's say you're, they're, mm-hmm. they're 36 weeks and their provider is like, well, let's go ahead and schedule your, your, you know, say that the whole time they have no idea that their provider does not let them as a VBAC go past 39 weeks, okay? Mm-hmm. And the provider says, oh, well, let's go ahead and schedule your um, cesarean at 39 and four because our, you know, at 39 weeks, because I don't let my VBAC moms go past 39 weeks. And this is mm-hmm. the first she's heard of it. What I tell them to do is to very calmly say, okay, I hear what you would like me to do, but I need to go home and think about it.
0: They don't Mm.
1: have to agree to anything right then and there. They don't have to bring out the big guns and start fighting with them because they're probably super emotional. You know, right. and Who yeah, and he, right? <laughs> he was this, this whole time, they thought they were going to have their VBAC. They had no idea that provider like doesn't go past 30, 90 weeks, which is, you know, one of the things I provide right. my VBAC moms in the beginning of the course is a provider interview questionnaire. And even if they already mm. have a provider, they can go ahead and bring it with them at one of, you know, their, 30, their, their appointments and say, especially things that maybe I brought to their attention they haven't thought of and be like, hey, you know, mm-hmm. what's your feelings about blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so say she goes home, she thinks about it. She probably, if she's one of my students, she's definitely going to message me. We're going to talk about it and we're going to come up with some clarifying questions. Um, I give them the brain acronym where they talk about what's the benefit, what's being offered to me, what's the benefits, what's the alternative, you know, what's the risk, what's the alternatives. Um, So I'll have them go back and come up with a plan of what they feel is appropriate And then go back and talk to the provider. Sometimes all you have to do is just like, you know, I I had a girl who her midwife was like, you know, I, she goes by the ARRIVE study, which I can't get into right now, but it's a study that a lot of providers have quoted saying that it's safer to induce at 39 weeks than go past because this and this, it's a real bonk Mm -hmm. study. Like there's so many holes in the study and it's ridiculous, um, but that's a whole nother podcast. Anyway. So she, her, her midwife was like, Hey, you know, I think I should, we'll go ahead and, and induce you. Cause and she said, oh, well, I, you know, I hear that that's what you want to do, but I, you know, I don't really want to be induced. I'd rather go past my, you know, go past 40 weeks. And then we can talk about like mm-hmm. you monitoring me and the baby and, and her midwife was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, oh, wow. So <laughs> sometimes all it takes is just speaking up, you know, and I had a, a VBAC student the other day that said her provider was talking to her about the stuff. And she said, we, you know, she told her provider, well, inside my VBAC course, I learned blah, blah, blah. And she's like, oh, you took a, a class. That's awesome. Like, I'm so happy to hear like, she so they, they talked about all the, the girl's birth plan and you know, she didn't want to have an IV fluids going. She just wanted to have a, a saline lock. And she told her provider, this is what I want, but I know that I have to stay hydrated. And I, you know, I didn't want to have an IV site, but I know that, you know, it's probably better that I do. So I don't mind having it, but I don't want IV fluids, but here's what I will do in place of that. And so it, I think that's a key when you talk to your provider is that you aren't just saying, I don't want it because I don't want it. You're saying like, Hey, I want to talk to you about this. This is, you know, the research I've done. This is what we've come up for our plan. And, um, you know, how can we compromise with one another?
0: Mm. I like that so much. So I know that we're running out of time. I just wanted to quickly touch on the fear of labor. And I know that, most, I would assume the majority of women have some baseline fear of labor. Uh, I, you know, um, I know that some women somehow have overcome that, but in general, at least from me talking to all the women that I've met, that there always is some sort of like baseline fear of labor, but specifically for VBACs, I know that you've talked about on your Instagram page that, you know, women who are having VBACs have a very specific type of fear And it does make it a little bit more unique. So what are some tips that you have for managing that fear?
1: Well, the number one tip I have for them is what I have for everyone. It's replacing your fears with truth and flipping the script of what you're telling yourself on the daily. So I really teach my students, all my students. So everything I say to my VBAC moms is the same thing that I would say to any mom, because really they're just moms having a vaginal delivery. Mm -hmm. Right. So their fears come in line with everyone else. Their, their typically main fear is a fear of ending up in a cesarean again. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so the main thing that I say to all these moms, the first thing you have to do is like acknowledge the fear. Don't like stuff it down. Don't like pretend like it doesn't exist. Acknowledge it, get it out there, write it down and then write down the truth. So, you know, if their fear is a repeat C-section, well, I've got all these stats for them, write them down, you know, like 75% of moms who attempt a VBAC are successful according to blah, 60 to 80% are successful according to blah, you know, like write these down and like really examine their fears, you know, like for all my other moms, the fear is usually tearing or fear (laughs) of the pain of labor right? So Mm -hmm. I teach them how to fill up their tool belts, all of them, they need to have a very full tool belt, a labor tool belt. And that's one thing, like the fear of labor is probably my top, like, what would I say? Like, that's probably the top thing that I'm known for is helping women flip that fear. Mm -hmm. And I, I can sincerely say that when I teach, I have a couple classes I teach during my open enrollments, either one of them, the regular birth course or the VBET lab. And one of them is conquering your fears. And probably 90% of the women who come to those classes at the very beginning, I have them give me an emoji of what they're feeling about their labor their fear of labor their fear of the pain of labor and then at the end i have them show me an emoji of how they're feeling now after the mm-hmm. class and probably 90% of them give me like the hands up or the strong like muscle arm you know emoji mm-hmm. and this it really is all about us as women Come in alongside them, they need to have an educational base. You need your foundation, the the liner. I always I tell them, like, what's the difference between like a good handbag and like a cheap one? It's mm-hmm. the way it's made, the liner, the the bottom of it, the you know, the the nitty gritty of it. It's right. Like the nitty gritty of your labor bag needs to be education. Like you have to understand the physiological side of labor. Like, what mm-hmm. is our body capable of doing? Like We don't have to tell, like I tell my girls all the time, like no one told you today's the day that you knit together tiny little fingers and toes, like your body just does it. And no one Mm -hmm. really has to tell your body what to do to go into labor to how to birth your baby. What we do is we come alongside and give you tools to use at specific times in labor. Cause as you know, what tool you use in early labor, that ain't going to work in transition. You know, mm-hmm. so like just having a really like strong labor tool bag filled with resources, filled with support, filled with knowledge, and filled with that power that comes from from being filled with knowledge is really all they need. Like I mm-hmm. I really emphasize to them that like I, I asked this in the in my course and in my class, like what is the one thing that Every birth needs like what is the one thing that you need to have a a successful birth? Mm -hmm. And it's her. Right. It's only her. That's really the only thing. She's the only thing that's needed for that birth. Like everybody else is replaceable. You know, so just remembering her power and her position and like she's the queen of the birth room, like she is the labor queen and she should be honored as so. And she she should have the rights to make decisions and to um, drive the course of that birth plan. And and we are there to help her stay on that path and stay on that course. But we're also there to help her if things go a little bit off, you know, mm-hmm. but we're not That's there not to funny. make it ours.
0: Right. Yeah, I I mean, just as you were saying all of that, I'm I was just thinking of myself and I haven't had a C-section or a V-back, but obviously, you know, I've always had that that baseline fear of of labor and delivery in general, but just as you were saying that education is the big key for not necessarily overcoming it, but at least in my case, it just made me feel empowered you know, to know and understand the process and just different aspects of it and what I can do uh, to speed up labor, you know, those sorts of things um, to, to make the, the fear, I guess, not so it's, so it's not, um, I don't know, paralyzing, I guess right. is the word that I'm looking for. So it's not like a paralyzing fear, but it's just more of, I guess, a natural fear because it, it is a very, a very scary thing to, to go through when you think about it. And uh, just, I don't know. I know that it's very natural, but at the same time, you know, my husband and I always talk about how crazy the whole thing is, right? When you step back and look at it, like, yes, it's natural, but it's also amazing and inspiring and and awesome.
1: Yeah, no, it is. It's, I mean, I literally, to this day, like when I am, you know, when I'm prepping a patient or what have you, like I sometimes get choked up a little when I'm like, even from this side, because it's so incredible. It truly is. It's so incredible. And I feel like, you know, there's, there's definitely, there's so much our body does that to enable us to legitimately love our labor and to embrace our labor. I mean, I, I, I think it's so amazing that the exact same hormone that causes those surges of love for our babies while we're breastfeeding is the exact one that brings the pain of labor. Like, <laughs> right. You know, so I tell my girls, like if we can like minimize those fears that are unfounded in those fears of the unknown, like if we can get rid of like some of the fears So that, you know, yes, you're going to have that baseline, like a little bit of anxiety and like nervousness is something you've never done. But if we can Mm -hmm. fill all of those holes with knowledge and this empowered, like mama bear, I'm the queen of the world, I've got this. Then when that oxytocin kicks in, it is designed to do that exact thing. Mm -hmm. to make you feel powerful, to like get into the groove, to get like, you know, all moms, like I've seen thousands of births. They all like move into this very focused Mm -hmm. world of their own, you know, and that's just, that's just all part of the process. Our job is just in that early labor when things are a little bit like, you know, we got to keep them moving forward. And like, that's why a good coach is so important, you know?
0: Mm Right, right. I did want to, before we close, I did want to mention uh, that too, that, you know, because you were talking about education support, obviously, you know, taking a class such as one of your classes would definitely be super, you know, inf- helpful and just so informative and empowering. And I know that a lot of moms have chosen when they're looking for a back to either have a doula or one of my friends, she actually found a hospital. It's it's sort of unique. I, I don't know if it's this common around the entire country, but at least in Orange County where I live, there's mm-hmm. a hospital that has a, a birthing center within the hospital where there's a midwife. And instead of just having your provider come at the very end to deliver the baby, that the midwife stays with the mom the entire time. And I know that for my friend, when she was trying for a BVAC, that was the most helpful for her because she did need that encouragement. Mm-hmm. And she said that there are parts and moments during her labor where she just said, I can't do it. I can't do it. And then the midwife was there with her and said, yes, you can. This is a normal part of labor. You know, this mm-hmm. everything that's happening is completely normal. And so at least from my friend's perspective, she said that without that support, she doesn't think that she could have had that. So again, just everything that you're saying, like the education, the support, taking the class and, you know, maybe having a doula or maybe going, you know, the, the midwife route if, if if there's um if there's something like that near you where it's kind of like part of a hospital in case you do need the C section and the VBAC doesn't fail, those sorts of things. So
1: yeah, yeah. Well, and that's a two part because um, it is definitely been proven that a woman who has continual emotional and physical support during labor that mm-hmm. the chances of a successful vaginal delivery is increased, I mean significantly, the wow. chances of um interventions are decreased, the use of interventions are decreased, the use of pain medication is decreased. There's there's a lot. Mm-hmm. But I always want my mamas to know like all of them that if you can't afford a doula, you still can have those things and that's why one of the reasons why I created my uh mini course for the support person, which if someone says to me, like, should my support person do the birth course or the, or the support person course? I'm like, well, they should do both, but they definitely need the full course because they need to understand Mm-hmm. The physiological side of labor. They need to understand like different ways to help her cope, and like what's right. going on when she hits transition, and why is she talking so crazy, and you know all those things. But that's <laughs> right. one thing. I th- I was telling you at the beginning that when I have an open enrollment for either of my courses, uh, my students who join during the open enrollment get all of my courses. Um, all the mini courses as well, they're made to complement the bigger courses Mm -hmm. because my main thing is that I want them to get the birth that they want. I want them to feel supported. And, you know, so if they can't afford a doula, then that doesn't mean that they're, you know, like their birth's out the window. I had vaginal deliveries, all of them unmedicated, and I did not have a doula, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's very Doable, um, but support is huge for labor. So that's one thing in my support course. Like I, I you know, I've, like I said, I've done a thousands of deliveries over my course of my career, and a lot. I, I hate to say it, but a lot of the coaches and support people that come into the room with my patients, you know, before COVID, usually I'd have like three or four family members in there, right, right. and the majority of them are not paying one bit of attention to her. Wow. And they, you know, that's something I emphasize throughout the support person code course and inside our, our communities is that this is not a time for them to be checking their Instagram or chatting with right. family members. They don't need to be updating everyone. Their right. main goal is to have their eyes and hands on mom as much as she needs it. Right. You know, so continuous support is huge.
0: Yes. Yeah. And spouses, I'm glad that you mentioned that too, that, you know, partners or, you know, I know some people who have chosen their mom too to be there, whoever you choose to be your support person. It, it, yeah, definitely. I didn't have a doula either. So it's, you know, obviously just having that support there is so important as well. So yeah, yeah well, gosh, thank, tr- thank you so much, Trish, for coming on our show Again, if anyone listening missed the first episode with Trish, be sure and check it out. Episode 45, uh, one of our most downloaded episodes of all time. I'm sure this one will be up there as well. And I really appreciate it so much. Trish. So for anyone listening, how can they find you online? And also if they wanted to take some of your classes, how can they
1: do that? Sure. So the best way and the place where I probably post the most of uh, my, my schedule is on Instagram. I'm at labor.nurse.mama. Um, I also have the blog, which is labornursemama.com. So the easiest way is uh, probably Instagram. If they have specific questions for me that they want to ask, like maybe they're not sure if they're a candidate or, or they don't want to wait until one of my open enrollment uh, periods because we do have a baby can't wait button, you know, just in case it's too they, too much time until open enrollment. They can send me an email at hello. Um, uh, let me say that again hello at labornursemama.com. And uh, they can just ask me what a question. I always respond to everyone. The easiest way to get me is usually through email. I get hundreds and hundreds of DMs on Instagram.
0: Perfect, and I'll be sure to link your Instagram page, and then uh, also information how they can get their, you know, get some of your classes and the show notes, and then also that email address as well. So, thank you so much again, Trish. I really appreciate. it. I learned so much from you once again, and I just always enjoy talking with you.
1: Thank you so much, Emily. Thank you.